You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. There is a phrase often quoted that goes something like this. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Now, the purpose of this verbiage is to incite courage within followers of Christ, that they might not just proclaim Jesus with their lips, but reveal him with their lives. The only problem is that there are two detrimental contradictions within this little piece of advice. One is that good news must always be shared with words, and two is that our actions preach the opposite of the gospel all the time. Because really, this quote does more to excuse our shame, laziness, and impassivity than it does to call us to boldness, action, and authenticity. Basically, what it leads us to thinking is, if I live a good life, people will believe Christianity, which takes works-based salvation to its furthest extremity. Because now, you're not just trying to save yourself by good deeds, but all humanity. However, both are an impossibility. You see, your goodness can't save yourself, and it can't save anyone else. What everyone else needs is what you needed too, and that is the proclamation of the good news. That is the spoken gospel. That God was open while we were hostile. That only because Jesus was broken is salvation made possible. That the power of death was stolen when he conquered the grave's obstacle and that it is by grace our hearts were woken and by grace we'll be made incorruptible. That is the news that's good even when we are not. So may our lips never fail to preach what our lives constantly fail to model. Let us preach the gospel at all times, necessarily as a spoken gospel. Boy, that is the challenge of the church today, isn't it? I don't know how many of you have ever uh, been on this, but there's a a website called Ranker, and it's a website, R-A-N-K-E-R, and what it does is it kind of just allows you to go on there, and they give you just like a variety of options there, and you can go and kind of rank the best of or your favorite. So you can go on there and you'll find all different kinds of categories, you know, uh, the best restaurant, your favorite food, you know, the best movie, the best actress, the best, you know, actor, uh, the great greatest sportsman. And so you, you kind of just go on there and you're allowed to vote and, and, and everybody's voting and it kind of ranks, um, you know, according to people's votes. So they have a category on there that is the uh, category of the most influential person in human history. Now, not surprising to any of us here in the room is that the number one person voted as the most influential person in all of human history is Jesus Christ. Again, that's no surprise to us. And Jesus Christ has consistently held this position on rancor since its inception. Now, what I did find a little surprising is this. 
I would think that if the most influential person in all of human history is Jesus Christ, I would kind of assume that maybe the second most influential person in all of human history would be the Apostle Paul. He wasn't. The Wright brothers were second. Benjamin Franklin uh, rated third as the most influential people in all of human history. As a matter of fact, Paul doesn't even make it into the top 10. Doesn't make it into the top 25. Doesn't make it into the top 50. Paul comes in at number 57. Now, again, what is surprising to me about this is Muhammad, Confucius, Buddha are all ranked higher than the Apostle Paul. Even Tom Hanks is rated higher than the Apostle Paul. Now I realize this again is just random people's opinion, but it is kind of surprising to me that people do not recognize the significant contributions and the overwhelming influence the Apostle Paul has had to the overall history of mankind. Now, the reason I say this is because biblical scholars have claimed that Paul should be understood and credited as the second founder of Christianity, Jesus Christ being the first. And what these scholars mean by that is simply that Christianity is more than just the teachings of Jesus. It's also about the Jesus who taught. More than any other person, it was the Apostle Paul who shifted the focus of Christianity from the proclamation of Jesus to the proclamation about Jesus. Let me just give you kind of a little bit of biographical uh, background information about Paul. He wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, almost half of the New Testament. He became the preeminent theologian of the early church and is the undisputed greatest missionary and evangelist the world has ever seen. Paul single-handedly transformed Christianity from a Jewish-only faith to a faith that included both Jew and Gentile and made Christianity accessible to everyone in every place at every time. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell us about the Jesus Christians are called to follow. But it was the Apostle Paul who was the one who told us what it means and what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus said the number one goal of both the church corporately and individually is to make disciples. And no one more carefully explained both theologically and practically what it means and what it looks like to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ than the Apostle Paul. The books of the Bible that Paul wrote are letters to real people at real times, in real places, in local churches. 
And four of those books that are found consecutively together in the New Testament, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, they are the books that lay out and explain what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So today, I want to begin looking at the earliest, the first of those four letters that Paul wrote And if you ever have trouble remembering the order of those uh, books, you can do Gentiles uh, eat pork chops. So it's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Gentiles Gentiles eat pork chops. Um, I don't know if that'll help anybody, but... So I want to just look at at the earliest, the first of those four books that Paul wrote, uh, and that is the book of Galatians. Now, if I had to assign an overall theme to the book of Galatians, the theme true freedom would be the most accurate. I say that because Paul began his ministry to the local churches by emphasizing that freedom The freedom that Jesus Christ brings is freedom from sin. It is freedom from the fear of death. It is freedom from having to strive to be pleasing. It's freedom from guilt. It's freedom from condemnation. It's freedom from shame. I mean, the whole book is beginning and end. It is the freedom to everything Jesus came to set us free from. It's freedom from, you know, not trying to uh, have to please God by, by doing or, or, or saying certain things or doing certain things. No other book in the Bible explains as clearly why Christianity is completely, uniquely, and totally different from every other world religion in the world than the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians has rightly been described as the emancipation proclamation of Christianity. Paul's clearest statement, he boils it all down into one sentence there in Galatians 5.1, and he states, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's our freedom That's why he set us free, Paul said. It is for our freedom. He says, therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. As you read through the book of Galatians, you realize the yoke of slavery that Paul's warning against there is enslaving ourselves once again to all of the religious laws, the rituals, the rules, the regulations that Christ fulfilled on the cross when he said, it is finished, it is done, it is taken care of, it has been fulfilled. And then he died to set us free from all of that. Jesus did it for us, so we don't have to do it for ourselves. We can simply rest and live out of that victory he accomplished for us. I also chose this particular direction, and I think all of us in this room recognize something is happening in America. I think now more than ever, 
We are seeing more and more and more of our freedoms, both religious and social freedoms, being encroached upon and taken away in ways we have never, ever seen before. The amount of censorship that is happening out there right now. There are states right now that will not allow churches to gather. I just saw this morning that Minnesota has gone to a complete total shutdown again. As of yesterday, you are no longer allowed to gather together with anyone for any reason at any time. It doesn't matter whether you're wearing face masks, social distancing, you are not allowed to gather with anyone outside of your home until December 18th. They have shut everything down in Minnesota. I know with the current rise of COVID cases, there's coming a lot of pressure upon local churches to once again shut down in-person services. And I was okay the first round because I, I realized we didn't know what we were dealing with. And I understood, you know, the, 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 the reasons behind that. They didn't want to overwhelm hospitals. And I, and I, I realized we're, we're at that place again. But I also realize that there are just some things that are essential, and I believe church, I believe gathering together as a body in person is essential. It's not just COVID cases in hospitals that are the problem. We've got people right now that, that, that are starting to have physical, mental, emotional issues. I mean, suicide is on the rise in this country. And I believe that the church is essential. I believe it serves a purpose. I think there is a reason why God calls us to gather together and warns us against not forsaking the gathering of ourselves together. There's just something we cannot do. We cannot provide. The Spirit of God cannot do online services. And there just comes a point where I think we've got to step out of the fear, out of the uncertainty, and we just got to trust God. Now, God bless you. You know, if you're here this morning wearing a face mask, that we're great, welcome, we're glad to have you here. If you're listening online and are choosing not to, grace to you. I'm just not convinced that a one-size-fits-all approach is what we need to be taking here. Thankfully, we have a governor right now who recognizes religious liberties and has not made any of the current restrictions applicable to religious activities. Now, back in March, when, when the original proclamation came out, she did include churches in that. Churches were not allowed to meet beyond a certain number of people without all of the safeguards in place. Thankfully, there were some people there that were able to kind of get a hold of the governor's ear. They talked to her about the religious liberties, and, and Governor Reynolds listened. And from that point forward, she responded by continuously saying all of the restrictions that she was giving did not apply to churches or religious organizations because she, and, and this was her wording, she wanted to respect religious liberties. 
And I know many people are upset over the latest proclamations and maybe feel Governor Reynolds, you know, had overstepped her constitutional authority. But she does continue to respect religious liberties. And so for that, I am grateful and will continue to pray for her. I cannot imagine what it would be like to have to be leading uh, in her position right now. It, it's so easy uh, to, to kind of do this uh, from the back bleachers, you know, what she should and she shouldn't do. But again, until you've walked in her shoes, I don't think any of us can even begin to under, uh, imagine what kind of pressure she is under trying to appease all of these different factions um, in our in our our state. So again, I just encourage you, pray for her um, and, 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 you know, err on the side of praying, err on the side of giving her grace, not criticism. So Paul's major point in Galatians, again, is because of Jesus, we are free from the rules, the regulations, the rituals, and even religion. None of those things have anything to do with deepening or establishing our relationship with God. And the one thing you gotta know, you gotta hear, and you gotta understand, and you got to receive, and you gotta be steadfast on this. To be right with God what it takes to be right with God is what we call the good news, the gospel. It contains the one central important message that defines, it distinguishes Christianity from any other religion ever known to mankind. The moment you say there is only one gospel, one Lord, one Savior, only one way to get to the Father, and that's through Jesus, you're gonna immediately be accused by those inside and outside the church of being bigoted, intolerant, and narrow-minded. But the call that Paul was making to the church in Galatia, and it is the call that Paul would continue to make to the churches today if he was here, is that we have got to be very clear there is only one gospel, and it is important to know what it is to be clear and to stand steadfast. It is not a Baptist gospel. It's not a Methodist gospel. It's not a a Presbyterian gospel, it's not a Catholic gospel, it's not a Republican gospel or a Democrat gospel. Jesus is not a Republican, he is not a Democrat. He is God's son. It is God's gospel. It is the, it is the infallible word of God. God. And I stand in agreement with the Apostle Paul who says in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, for it is that gospel, it is that power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek 
I love what Schofield says in his Bible. He says that word salvation there, that is the all-inclusive word. That word salvation, it means healing. It means deliverance. It means peace. It means wholeness. So Paul is saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power, the dunamis, the dynamite of God unto healing, unto deliverance, unto salvation, unto wholeness, unto healing. It is the all-inclusive word. And again, you may think that is narrow-minded, but frankly, if you stop and think about it, being narrow-minded has its advantages. You want a banker. You want an accountant to be narrow-minded when it comes to finances, right? I want them to believe wholeheartedly, consistently, without reservation that two plus two is four, not one. You go to a doctor, I want that doctor to be narrow-minded in their belief and understanding in the field of medicine as much as they can be. When I'm feeling bad, I think something's wrong with me, I don't want to go to a doctor and say, doctor, what's wrong with me? And have him say, well, who am I to say? Here, I'll just kind of give you a list of all the diseases known to mankind. You pick out one or three, and I'll give you prescriptions to, to, to treat that. Or, or here, I'll give you a list of organs. You just let me know which one, and I'll take it out. I want a pharmacist who's going to give me exact medications, not a, not a picture of a bunch of bottles and pills and say, pick out the pretty ones. When it comes to the gospel, the good news, the freedom that we are given in Jesus Christ, Paul argues, we got to be narrow-minded we got to be clear in what it says and what it doesn't say and not be ashamed of it, not shrink back from it, not apologize for it. Don't water it down. If we compromise both the truth and the freedom we have been given through Christ, we will eventually subject ourselves again to that yoke of slavery that Paul warned the Galatian church about. A true Christian, a true disciple of Jesus Christ, they're going to be clear. They're going to be narrow-minded in their beliefs about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about the Word of God. And Paul does not waste any time, and he certainly does not mince any words in dealing with the church of Galatia because he knows what happens if he doesn't. And Paul sees a problem going on in that church, and, and he identifies three things. He says, here's three things I see going on, and here's three things to remedy that. The first thing he tells them is the true gospel of Jesus Christ emphasizes the grace of God. And, and hopefully you picked that theme up in the video as he was talking again about the grace of God. In every other letter that Paul writes, 
He kind of starts off with, you know, introductions and, and these warm greetings. Hi, how are you? And, and he's commending the church for their faith and their love and their service. Boy, you look at the book of Galatians. I mean, he doesn't waste any time. He cuts right to the chase. And in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I am shocked. Some translations say stunned that you are turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through this loving mercy of Christ. And he says, you're following a different way that pretends to be the good news, the gospel. But he says, it's not the gospel. It's not the good news at all. It's kind of like what Charlisa prayed about this morning again is, is just having him re reveal those deceptions. And Paul's saying to them, you've been deceived, you've been fooled, you've been tricked, you've been bewitched. And Paul's stunned at what he sees. He's stunned at what he's hearing, and rightly so, that the people in this church have so quickly turned away from the gospel of Christ and that they're now embracing a different and a perverted gospel. So what's happening here? Remember, Paul is an apostle and as an apostle, he's going from city to city. He's preaching the good news. People are being born again. And then Paul is bringing them together. And he's forming churches for the purpose of these new converts to now become disciples, to become fully mature in their understanding, in their following of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in this place, the city of Galatia, Paul goes there. And many people, they're, they're converted. And so Paul establishes a church there. And at some point, Paul leaves Galatia and he goes on to another city to preach and, and, to, and to form churches. And this was kind of Paul's mission, was he just went all over the place preaching the good news, converting people, and then he would form churches for the purpose of discipling them. So Paul leaves Galatia. And it says that there are some uh, people who kind of follow behind Paul. So once Paul leaves a city, the, these false teachers, they were called Judaizers. They kind of came in behind Paul and they began preaching a different gospel. They began kind of undoing everything that Paul had said and done there. These were, these were Jewish people who had become uh, uh, believers, but they were, they were preaching and teaching that as a Gentile, as a Gentile believer, you still had to become a Jew. You still had to be circumcised. You still had to follow the Mosaic laws. You still had to, to do good works to be a Christian. And so these Judaizers, they were basically false teachers they had turned on a dime and they started teaching and preaching the exact opposite of what Paul had taught and preached to them. I think it's interesting in 2 Corinthians, Paul kind of talks about this in chapter 12 and a lot of you are familiar with this. 
And, and there, there Paul says this. He, he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, he says, because of the extraordinary greatness of the revelations. Now, what were those extraordinary greatness revelations? They were on the grace of God. I'm sure there were other things that maybe Paul was receiving in terms of download and revelation from God, but one of those surpassing great revelations that Paul was receiving was on this grace of God. And he said, for this reason, to keep from exalting myself, he said, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. And, and oftentimes we kind of think of that as, you know, kind of a pain in the side or uh, somewhere else. Uh, Paul says, I, I've got this pain in my side. It's a thorn of the flesh. And he describes it, a messenger of Satan to torment me. A messenger to keep me from exalting myself. He said, concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that he would remove this from me, and the Lord said uh, all three times, my grace, my grace, my grace, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. So they're following Paul everywhere, and they're undoing everything Paul is saying on the gospel of grace. And Paul's getting agitated. He says, man, Lord, these people, they are a pain in my side. You need to get rid of them. You need to shut them down because they are undoing. They are damaging the message of grace. And God said, no, no, no. My grace is sufficient. You know what Paul did? Paul doubled down. And Paul went back to those cities like Galatia and Ephesus and Colossae, and, and he began to double down on the message of grace. He began to teach more and more and more and more on the gospel of grace. The more they came against Paul, the more Paul preached on the gospel of grace. And that's in part what the book of Galatians is all about. Had there been none of that, Paul, we may not have all that we have that teaches us and tells us about the grace of God. God was using that opposition to create an opportunity for Paul to preach all the more on this surpassing greatness of these revelations that God was giving him. So we, we, don't, we don't understand that. We don't understand what Paul was up against taking this gospel and bringing it to the Gentile people. The Jewish people, they were very offended at what Paul was doing and they felt like the Gentile people needed to become Jewish in order for them to be able to have what the gospel offered them. And Paul comes and says, no, this is, this is all part of the grace of God. And so there just came these clashing of heads. And again, that's where Paul talks about that is that messenger of Satan. That is the thorn in the flesh. That is the, the pain in my side. And God said, if I get rid of that, you're gonna stop teaching on the grace of God. They are there to make sure you keep on teaching more deeply and more deeply on the subject of grace. Now the term deserter, a lot of us are familiar with that. It's a military term and it refers to soldiers who kind of desert the battlefield. 
And, and Paul is kind of appealing to these new believers who were being pressured by these false teachers, these Judaizers, to desert their newfound faith or their new understanding of the grace of God and to return to the Old Testament laws. They were tempted and they were being pressured to buy the lie that these Judaizers were pushing and they're simply saying, in order to be a Christian, you still have to adhere to all of the Jewish laws, the rules, the regulations, the traditions found in the first five books of the Old Testament. In other words, they're saying faith alone in the redemptive work of Christ on the cross was not sufficient. It was not enough. So Paul is appealing to these new converts, these new disciples in the church of Galatia to not desert their newfound faith for what these false teachers were presenting. The Judaizers, the false teachers were accusing Paul of preaching a false gospel, an incomplete gospel. Paul preached a gospel of grace and the Judaizers were coming along and adding the word and to everything Paul was saying. When you add the word and to the grace of God's work of salvation, you are in the process of deserting the gospel message, the true good news. If you believe that in order to be right with God, you have to accept Jesus and be baptized, or you need to accept Jesus and belong to the church, you need to accept Jesus and do good works. Paul says you are in the process of deserting the good news gospel. When you add the word and to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, you are saying the grace of God is not enough. It's not sufficient and the truth of the gospel says that not only is the grace of God enough, it is fully complete and it is all sufficient and a free gift of God to all mankind who will receive it. What Jesus did upon the cross was all sufficient. It met every and satisfied every demand God required and nothing needs to be added to what Jesus Christ did upon the cross. It is that perfect, it is that complete, it is that sufficient. And when we come to the Father through faith alone in what Christ accomplished upon the cross, the Bible says we are accepted and made right with God. See, not only were they turning away from that message, that gospel, that good news, but they were turning from the God of grace that gave them the gospel. There is only one gospel, and that is the gospel of grace. And when you turn your back on the grace of God, you turn your back on the God of grace. So Paul is warning these new believers regarding the tactics of these false teachers. He says, you're being fooled, you're being deceived, you're being tricked, you're being bewitched by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Now that word fooled, it means to reverse. 
So you might say these Judaizers, these false teachers that were following Paul everywhere trying to undo the good news of the gospel, you could almost say they were reverse engineering the gospel meaning that they were taking it apart and then they were adding in their rules, inserting their regulations, their rituals, their interpretations, and then they were putting it all back together and presenting it as the gospel. A lot of that still happens today. There are a lot of popular twistings of the gospel that are out there. There's a lot of reverse engineering of the gospel that is happening out there. Let me just give you a couple. First one is what we call the affluent gospel or the prosperity gospel. Now, I believe there is a biblical prosperity. And by that, I mean God wants us to prosper in this life physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, physically, John 3, 1, 2 says, Beloved, I pray that in all respects, in every way, some translations say, that you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Now, when I refer to the prosperity gospel, I'm referring to those who have taken the true biblical meaning of prosperity and they've reversed engineered its message to pervert it into a fake false gospel of greed, materialism, and excess. Now we have to understand that for every biblical doctrine of the Christian faith, every biblical doctrine of the Christian faith, I would like you to kind of think of as a middle road. And that middle road, that's the path we're called to walk. That's the path we're called to be obedient to. And, and we want to stay on that middle road, that, that middle road of biblical doctrine, because again, it leads to safety. It, it leads to blessing. It leads to life uh, in, in, the, in the way Jesus came to give it. It, it leads to spiritual balance and uprightness. And every biblical doctrine on that middle road is subject to ditches on both the left and the right. So you take the doctrine of, of water baptism. The middle road, the truth of what the Bible teaches on baptism is that baptism is a sacrament of the church that communicates it identifies, it represents our identification with Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. And every person who is baptized should identify with that. That is the correct biblical doctrine. That is middle road teaching. Now certain denominations, teachers, pastors, leaders, they come along and they take that middle road Biblical doctrine on baptism, and they run it into ditches on both the right and the left. The ditch on one side of the road regarding baptism is you cannot be saved unless you're baptized. 
And like I said earlier, whenever you take the gospel of grace and add the word and, you need to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and be baptized. You're in a ditch. Some cases they'll say, well, yeah, you may have been baptized, but you weren't baptized in our church. Our water, our whatever, so you got to do it here or, or it just doesn't apply. Now here at Praise, we believe if you were baptized as an adult in another church or through a mainline denomination or evangelical church, we recognize that baptism is valid. So if you were baptized at the uh, uh, vineyard uh, here before you came here, we would recognize that baptism as valid. And, and you do not need to be rebaptized here, okay? So that's one ditch. The other side of the ditch is that baptism has no relevance or importance today. Now, one of the ways we see that played out a lot in denominations today is that baptism is for babies only. When I was part of the mainline denomination for nine years, I never baptized one adult, only babies. If you brought up the subject of baptism to adults, their response would be, well, I was baptized as a baby. Or, that's for babies. I'm not a baby. Once we become a believer, once we've made that profession of faith in Jesus Christ for ourselves, we're called to be baptized, whether we were baptized as a baby or not. We are called to be baptized as a believer. That's what is referred to as a believer's baptism because it's something that we do in response to this newfound faith in Christ, whereas being baptized as a baby is not a choice we make for ourselves. So those are the two ditches we can easily fall into. You take the biblical doctrine of divine healing. Again, I believe that our physical healing was provided for in the atonement Jesus made on the cross. By his stripes, we were healed. That is a direct link to the atonement of Jesus Christ and the cross. That is correct biblical doctrine. The middle road on biblical doctrine of healing is we believe God does and can heal our physical bodies through the anointing of oil, through the laying on of hands. We also believe that God can and does use doctors and other natural means as instruments of his healing. Good nutrition, exercise, uh, a Im good immune system, those are all natural means that God can use in our healing in, in getting us be better and keeping us well. Now the ditch on one side of the road when it comes to healing is that healing, as well as all the other ministry gifts that Bruce spent the last three weeks passionately presenting on, we would say those have all been done away with. We don't need those gifts anymore. Those were done away back in the early church. The days of, of healing, the days of miracles ceased following the days of the early apostles. That's one ditch. The other ditch when it comes to divine healing is that healing is the only legitimate way God works using doctors, medicine, hospitals. That's a lack of faith and it is sin. That is a ditch. Every middle road 
biblical doctrine has ditches on both sides. That's why we need the word. It's why we need the spirit of truth within. It's why we need one another to help keep us on the middle road biblically. It's part of what our elders are about. So when it comes to the biblical doctrine of prosperity, the middle of the road teaching is God loves to bless his children. He is a good, good, happy, loving, gracious father who desires to bless his kids. Just as earthly mothers and fathers, it is our desire to bless, or, or it should be our desire to want to bless our children with good things. Even Jesus said that. You, parents, being evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more? How much more God loves to give good things to his children? Jesus said that. I didn't. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, he says, don't worry about food, clothing, shelter, drink. Your heavenly Father knows you have need of all of that. And he is very committed to making sure all of your needs, not your wants, your needs, not your greed, your needs are met. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. It will be provided. It will be taken care of. We believe that the Bible has a lot to say about money, both good and bad. And as Christians, we're called to be good stewards in the way we use money for ourselves and in the ways we help others. Biblical prosperity teaches that God blesses us in order to be a blessing to others. So one ditch in this biblical doctrine of prosperity, and again, this is very much alive in the evangelical church today. And one ditch to this biblical doctrine of prosperity is that all money is evil, And so all true Christians should despise and avoid money and any or any accumulation of wealth or material possessions. That God wants his children to live in poverty as a witness of our humility. To lack the essential needs of life again as a demonstration of our humility and that pastors should never, ever, ever talk about money except to condemn it. That's one ditch. The other side of the ditch to biblical prosperity is getting rich is the main focus of faith and what it really means to be a Christian. That God's main interest, his main goal, his main focus for your life is your material well-being. And the more you have, the blessed you are. God's main desire is for you to have it all in abundance. And the primary goal of giving, yeah, I'm going to give, but just so I can get more. 
Not, I want to give to bless. I'm giving. I'm sowing so I can. It's, it's, it's all focused on what I'm going to get out of that. If you're not rich and abundant in material possessions, you lack faith, brother, sister. Someone stole your seed. Or you're, you're living way below uh, God's best for you. You know, God doesn't want us to be broke, busted, and disgusted. People in this ditch, and it is a ditch, believe pastors should be teaching on money, on sowing and reaping, speaking your wealth into existence, etc., all the time. That's all we should be talking about. Now, let me just end this part of this by saying something that is going to shock many of you, especially if you're familiar with the prosperity teaching. One of the best books I have ever read on biblical prosperity was called The Midas Touch by Kenneth Hagin. I'm going to say that's going to shock many of you that are familiar with Kenneth Hagin because many wrongly believe, in my opinion, that Kenneth Hagin is that last ditch I talked about regarding prosperity. As a matter of fact, many people accuse Kenneth Hagin of being the pioneer of that unbiblical doctrine of prosperity. He's not. I've read his book several times. I even looked through it again this week. He is very middle of the road, very biblical in his approach, his teaching regarding biblical prosperity. Now, what happened was people took Kenneth Hagin's material, his teachings, and twisted them to say things he never intended and never said. They take many of his comments way out of context and then the critics blame him instead of the ones who distorted or reverse engineered his teachings. They took his middle-of-the-road teaching on biblical prosperity and took it into one of the other ditches. Now, the reason I believe that's true is because Kenneth Hagin wrote that book, The Midas Touch, in the year 2000, just a couple of years before his death in 2003. And he did that because he saw, and, and he writes about it in the book, he saw the ditches people were taking his teachings on biblical prosperity into, and he wanted to be on the record correcting all of those false teachers and messages. He sought in that book to bring back biblical balance regarding prosperity because he saw the damage that was being done by some false teachers in the body of Christ. So I would encourage you, you can borrow my book or buy your own, but I would encourage you to get that book if you want to understand more regarding the truth and biblical prosperity and the heirs uh, in, in, of the current prosperity gospel. I'm going to just kind of uh, close here. I, I want to kind of talk about uh, next week. I'm going to pick up, and I want to talk about a few more excesses uh, of this gospel. Again, a lot of this reverse engineering of the gospel message, these false teachings. I want to kind of talk next week. I want to talk about the, um, the, the cheap grace gospel or the hyper grace 
gospel. Um, I want to talk about uh, the social gospel, um, and I want to talk about what I call the adaptable gospel. So I'll kind of get into those because, again, those are three very, very popular teachings right now in the body of Christ that I think are, 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 are really taking people in a direction uh, away from the true gospel, the true good news. But again, the purpose of everything we're going to be talking about in, in this is true freedom. That is what we're after. That is what this is all about. I say to people, if, if, if he sets you free, he can keep you free. And that's what he wants to do. If you have been set free from the fear of death, if you have been set free from fear in general, if you've been set free from shame, guilt, condemnation, if you've been set free from having to strive and to try to please God, if you've been set free, he wants to keep you free. He wants you to be able to do kind of like what Paul did, and that is in that freedom to find even greater depths, even greater revelations of freedom. He will never, ever take you into a place of, of bondage. Um, God is never, ever going to lead you into a place of guilt. Kind of, that's the enemy traffics there. God traffics in grace and mercy and goodness and kindness. He traffics in true freedom. And, and as Paul said, it is for freedom that you and I have been set free. Therefore, we have got to make sure that we are never, ever taken captive or hostage again by that yoke of slavery. Amen? Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for that message of freedom. Father, we thank you for that book of Galatians. We thank you for that church in Galatia. Father, we thank you for the teaching of what it is to be free, of what it is to be a true, a bold disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I thank you, Lord, that those that you have set free, that you can keep free. And Father, I, I believe, Lord, that you have even greater depths of freedom for each one of us in this room, no matter how free we may feel today. There's always greater and more freedom. So Father, this morning, I just pray, Lord, like Paul did as he looked at that church, and Lord, he found those places where they were beginning to come under that yoke of slavery. Father, I pray as you look at our hearts and our lives this morning, that Father, if there are places where we are coming under a yoke of slavery, that, God, you would bring the good news of the gospel to us. That, God, you would bring that message of freedom. That, God, we would see that ditch or those ditches that we're in. That we would see those places where we're being led astray. Those places where maybe we're tempted to desert the good news of grace. And that, God, you would gently firmly, clearly call us out. Call us back. Your word says that it is your kindness, it's your goodness that leads us to repentance. So Father, we ask for revelation. We ask for insight into those places, those areas, God, where we may be walking out of freedom and into slavery, into bondage, and Father, we thank you that you have come to set us and to keep us free. 
And Father, we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to grow as a disciple, as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we become bolder. May we become more knowledgeable in the things of the Spirit. May we be given that that wisdom. May we be given knowledge. May we be given, again, uh, the prophetic word, Lord, that would, again, just continue to lead us, to guide us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that leads us into all truth. We thank you for your word that is always in unison and harmony with your Holy Spirit. And those two things, your word and your spirit, Father, they testify to us. They speak to us. They lead us, they guide us, and they keep us in perfect peace. We thank you for that. Especially in this time, these times that we are in where it would be so easy to be given over to so many other things that again would be that yoke of slavery. Father, we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to stand strong, to be steadfast in your truth in your gospel, and we thank you that Jesus gives us the ability, the strength, the endurance, and the perseverance to do it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org.